Please open your Bibles to Ephesians. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 10 through 14. Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. And I invite you to stand if you can. Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against, the, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Please be seated. And Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Uh, what is God like? If you were to ask people... What is God like? Well, we compare God with. And I think most people in America, as we think about our context here, they would compare God, they see God as a weak, passive, always smiling grandfather who accepts everyone and loves everyone. That's, I think, how most people would describe our God. Uh, the increasing number of churches that they, they have the, the rainbow LGBTQ flag in their front lot is an evidence that they see God as this all-accepting, weak, fragile being that just wants everybody to be happy. So that's how I strongly believe most people in America would see God like if they see anything, God is just this passive, weak grandpa who is just smiling at everyone and just wants everyone to be happy. The Bible shows, and you think about the Bible, the Bible shows the manifold attributes and the character of God in different metaphors, in different ways. So you think about how, what, what is God like, and the Bible will describe God with different metaphors. So, for example, God is pictured as a, as a close friend. A faithful friend. The Bible describes God as a faithful friend. The Bible describes God as an eagle that takes care of the eaglets. The Bible describes God as, one of the metaphors is, a faithful husband. The Bible describes God as a father. So you have these metaphors. But one of the primary metaphors in the Bible for God is that He is a warrior, a warrior king, a king who fights, a king who is in war. So just for example, we have in Psalm 24, 8, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in what? In battle. Or Psalm 35, 1 through 3, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. 
Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Or, you can see also in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He, shout, he shows himself mighty against his enemies. Or Habakkuk 3. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, lay him bare from thy to neck. So the Bible does never pictures God as this passive, always smiling grandpa who is always accepting everyone, just wants everyone to be happy. Actually, the Bible pictures God as this warrior who is angry and fighting against Satan, against sin, and against sinners. A lot of times we forget that sin is not an object out there, but sin is manifested in people. <laughs> Jesus Christ also, He's portrayed as a mighty warrior in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that would surprise many people to hear that Jesus Christ is actually portrayed as a mighty Soldier. Jesus is not portrayed as a docile, spineless, coward, all-accepting, and soft man. No. He embodies gentleness. He embodies kindness. He embodies grace. He is the embodiment of all these virtues, but it's never separated or divorced from His warlike character. So you think about all the healings and, and the exorcism that Jesus performed. It's always pictured, the healings and the casting of demons, it's always pictured as Jesus, this mighty warrior, fighting and rescuing. That's why He says about Himself that He came to bind the strong man. So all His healing and his, the casting of demons, it is actually binding. He's fighting and binding the strong man. Or, for example, in Mark chapter 4, we have the wonderful text about Jesus calming the storm. And that's just another picture of the Old Testament where Yahweh is the warrior who conquers the chaotic sea. The sea is a picture of trouble. The sea is a picture of death. The sea is a picture of chaos. And you always have Yahweh as sovereign over the waters, over the sea. And then you have Jesus as a mighty warrior. And Mark tells us that the waves were trying to destroy the boat, just like an enemy. And Jesus stands up and what does He do? Hush, be still. By the power of His word, He conquers the mighty sea. So, you start seeing Jesus is always pictured as this warrior. So Paul says, for example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verses 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So you see, once again, the New Testament picturing Jesus as what? Well. This vengeful 
warrior coming to repay those who paid evil to his people. Oh, but I like to see Jesus as the wonderful counselor. Amen. But in that same text in Isaiah 9 where he's called the wonderful counselor, you remember he's also called uh, the mighty God, El Gibor. The mighty there, the Gibor is always used for a warrior, the warrior God. We can never separate these aspects of Jesus, and that's what people love doing. We have our Lord as a warrior, and all those who are in Christ, all those who are in union with Jesus, they are in union with the warrior king. We cannot separate that. So though our victory in Christ is sure, we still have battles to face, and our God is still a man of war. Exodus 15, verse 3. So as Jesus carries us into his arms, as Jesus carries us into himself, he's also carrying us into his army. As Jesus brings us into himself, he's bringing us into his battles, into his war. And that's all we see in Revelation chapter 12. I want to invite you to open to Revelation chapter 12 so you can get a glimpse of this reality. You can't come to Jesus and not come to war. In Revelation chapter 12, John is giving us another picture of what's going on between the coming, the first coming and the second coming. The victory inaugurated and waiting for the victory consummated. And he says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Remember, the red dragon is the serpent. is red because of blood. He's violent. He's seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. And then what we have here is this woman, she gives birth to the Messiah. The male seed that was expected. And this woman here is a picture of the community of God's people, the church, God's people. It's the faithful community of God's people throughout the ages, culminating with the coming of Christ. And then you, you, you keep reading here, you see the, 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 the male child is taken up, it refers to his coming. His death, his ascension, he's taken into heaven, and as he's taken, he's coronated, and the dragon is cast down, implying the victory of Christ in the heavenly realms. And then we read, we read in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 12, Woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And that's exactly what we have happening during this church age. The community of God's people, Christ comes through his faithful people, and now Christ is taken up, the dragon is cast down, and he's angry, he knows his time is short. Look at it says. And he pursue whom? The dragon is pursuing whom? The woman who represents God's people, the community of God's faithful people. 
Why? Because he knows that his time is short. He's defeated. And he's cruel and violent against the church right now. So the woman symbolizes the church, the faithful community of God's people, in contrast with the great harlots. The woman is in the wilderness, and the wilderness is this time as we are journeying into the heavenly Jerusalem. We are in the wilderness right now, and the wilderness in the Bible is a place where God protects His people. Nonetheless, we suffer in the wilderness. That's how we we have the, the picture of wilderness. So the church right now, we, the community of God's people, are in this transition. We are moving to the great Eternity with the Lord or the new heavens and the new earth. And while we are in this journey, in this wilderness, even though God is protecting us, we still go through pain and suffering. Amen? But that's all we have here in Revelation 12. So I like what one scholar says. He says, the final phrase, he knows that his time is short, provides two meanings to these last days of salvation's history. On the one hand, it suggests the kairos of the church's tribulation is limited, meaning God has established this time of tribulation that we are going through until the second coming. Its end is imminent. On the other hand, it implies that hostilities towards believers will increase because the beast has been wounded and beaten. The first meaning generates hope, while the second meaning explains the existential experience of powerlessness, is not this the very nature of the church's crisis, this side of Christ's return? And then he goes on, he says, The Christ event has altered the relationship between the people of God and God's enemy. The devil has been overcome in heaven and has now gone down to the messianic community on earth. The result is heightened is a heightened sense of the spiritual and historical struggles of living for God in an anti-God world. So, as we are taking to Christ, as we belong to God, now the war changes. We are no longer in war against God. Now, the serpent, the dragon, is in war against us. That's all we have taking place during this time. So it's with this understanding of our union with Christ, our communion with the warrior king, our communion with His battles, that Paul comes to Ephesians 6 and reminds us we are in a war still. Yes, the final victory is ours, but things have not been consummated yet. Have you been glorified yet? We haven't been glorified yet. As we are waiting for the glorification, the consummation, we keep fighting. And remember, the, the, the example of the Second World War is, is very good. D-Day, V-Day, there is a time between victory inaugurated and then victory consummated in Europe. And in between that, almost one year, a lot of casualties. People died, even though the war had been, in one sense, guaranteed the victory. But still, until the consummation of all things, people are still suffering and going through battles. So, as we come to Ephesians 6, I just want to remind you that it's tempting for us to come to this passage in spiritual warfare and remove out of the context. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to take a text out of context. And this text of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, is in the context of the letter, and the context of the letter is in the context of the New Testament, the Old Testament. So, we always need to keep in mind. And that's important because as we read this text, 
The first thing we see is that Paul is drawing, Paul is drawing this, all these metaphors, all these pictures here from the well of the Old Testament. So all these things is not just a new creation of Paul. He's actually drawing from the well of the Old Testament. So all these things that he's talking about is found in the Old Testament. So as we think about the context, we have the Old Testament context, and we also have the context of the letter to the Ephesians. And I, sh- I told you earlier, not today, some Sundays ago, how Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is a conclusion to the whole letter. And in this conclusion, Paul is bringing many of the themes that he spoke earlier. Now he's bringing to a conclusion with this text. It's important to, for us to understand that the armor of God is not this random thing that Paul is just writing right now. No, it's connected to the whole letter. So if you want to understand the armor of God, you've got to understand the whole letter to the Ephesians. Paul had already called the Ephesians to bear the likeness of our Lord and God. So for example, here's important for us to understand the armor of God. So in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, Paul says, But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and you are taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Look at that. The truth is in Jesus because he's going to talk about the belt of truth. The truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, to do what? Put on the new man. It's a better translation. But on the new Adam, the new Adam, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the call, the call to put on the armor of God is actually a call to bear the image of God. That's very important, brothers and sisters. The call to put on the armor of God is not something random. Oh, here, let me. No, it's the call for us to bear the image of God. This well-known call is a call to the whole church to bear the image of Christ, the warrior Lord. Thus, instead of a simple call to personal piety, what we have here is a call to put on Christ for the sake of the unity and the maturity of the church. So we see in Ephesians 5.1, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to imitate God, and Paul already described the Lord God Jesus as this ascended victorious king who ascended the new Mount Zion, chapter 4 of Ephesians. And now Paul is calling us to imitate God. And we imitate God by being militant against the devil. So during this time of the already but not yet, we fight bearing the image of the resurrected Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 15 of Ephesians. All these things are crucial in order for us to understand what the arm of God is. So in chapter 2, Paul says, verse 14, For He Himself is our shalom, our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressing ordinances that He might create in Himself what? One new Adam. One new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the contrast that Paul has is between humanity in Adam and humanity in whom? 
in Christ. Those are the only two races that we have. The race in Adam, fallen race, and the race in Jesus Christ, the great Adam, the last Adam. Adam was supposed to bear the image of God, and as an image bearer, Adam was supposed to wage war against the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He was supposed to be a warrior and crush the head of that serpent. Amen? He was supposed to bear the image of God, this image of a warlike man. He failed. He failed and God strips him out of his image of a warrior-like. And we know that because then Adam is going to try by his own efforts to make clothes for himself. So he tries with his own to make his own armor. And God said, that does not work like that. And will not work. That's why we need Christ. Now in Christ, because of our union with the greater Adam, Jesus, we are clothed with His own armor. And that's what Paul is throughout this whole letter to the Ephesians. If you get the theology of putting on something, it is to put on Christ, to imitate God. So when we are putting on the armor of God, we are putting on Christ. We are being image bearers of this God who is a warrior. Amen? So, here is the outline of this morning's sermon. That was just the introduction. I'm kidding. It's going to be quick. Don't worry. There we have the call to stand. <laughs> Verse 14a. And then how to stand. So the call to stand and then how to stand. So the first is the call to stand. And, and Paul says, therefore, stand. The therefore is connecting us to verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. That's who we are. We are in the Lord. You have His power, His resurrecting power. He has given us. In light of this, be strong in the Lord. The strength of His mind. So some translations, older ones, they have having girded your loins with the truth. And, and language changes, so we don't use girding anymore or loins. So I like the ESV when the ESV has having fastened on the belt or the NIV has uh, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So that's very cool translation. I think it's easier for us to grasp. Uh, the importance of the belt is manifold. Okay, the, the belt gave stability to the soldier. It gave firmness to his core. So one scholar says, in a culture where the people were long, loose, feeding robes, the garments were tied close to the body when quick action was required. So the belt would be holding those things together here in your core, giving you stability, strength. Even today, power lifters, when they're going to lift something really heavy, they have what around their waist? A belt, I think, the core. Another aspect, the belt was a sign of readiness to be prepared. To have your belt, to have your clothes loose was a sign of relaxation. But actually, to have your garments tucked in with the belt was a sign of readiness. Ready for battle. That's why in Exodus 12, as they are about to partake of the, the Passover meal, one of the requirements, requirements that the Lord has for them is to have what? The belts tight. A sign of that they're ready to fight. They're ready to depart and be the army of the Lord. Uh, 
In Isaiah 45, for example, we read, Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. So the expression, to loose the belts of kings, is to take their power away, to remove the source of their strength. Even today, martial arts, at least in Judo or Jiu-Jitsu, every time you're going to start a fight, you've got to have your gi, welpa, and your belt fixed. So every time you're going to start the fight, you've got to have the belt, the gi inside the belt. Why? It's a sign of readiness. Also, you're not giving your opponent material for grabbing. So that's all the importance of the belt around uh, shows readiness to fight preparedness so in first peter 1 13 peter says therefore prepare your minds for action and some older translation says having girded your mind for action and the idea here that peter is saying is put a belt around your mind get your minds ready for battle that's what peter is saying or in luke luke chapter 12 it's fascinating, this, this text here, the Lord's teaching His disciples about the importance of being alert. In verse 35, He says, Stay dressed for action. That's how the ESV translates. But if you read the Greek sentence, it's very similar, very similar to the Greek sentence in Ephesians 6.14. About buckling your waist with a belt. But here's... Why we translate differently. So you see, for example, the SMB has uh, stay dressed for action. When literally says what? Put on the belt. But we don't say that because culturally we would not understand. Put on the belt. So that's why they translate and they change so we can understand. Stay dressed, ready. But the idea is to put the belt around. So, belt became a biblical imagery also that symbolizes a quality that's closely linked to a person. So, for example, because the belt is so close to someone, to put the belt was the same as to be in union with that, with, with that person. Uh, there is one passage that's very helpful. It's in Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. We, we read about the Lord commanding Jeremiah to buy a belt... It says a loincloth, but it's the same as a belt. A loincloth, a belt. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to bury that belt. Bury in an area that's the name of a place where they're going to exile. And then sometime later, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go and get the belt. And Jeremiah gets the belt. And how is that belt? All destroyed. So Jeremiah 13, 7 says, And behold, the loincloth, or the belt, was spoiled. It was good for nothing. And then in verse 11, here we understand the picture of the belt that the Lord is trying to teach Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13, 11. For as the loincloth, or the belt, clings to the waist of a man, so I made the house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, Judah Claim to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and glory, but they would not listen. Hmm. 
So this, the picture of the bell is communion. I made the house of Judah to be a bell for me, to be in union with me, to be connected to my core. But they didn't want to do that. Skip here, and he says, this belt is going to be, what we are supposed to put around us is the truth. That's what the Lord is commanding us. And then the question raised by these scholars is, what is the, the belt of truth? What is the belt of truth? Is it propositional truth? Is it doctrinal truth? Or is it ethical, practical truth? Is it doctrinal truth? Is it propositional truth or is it practical truth? Speaking the truth, not lying, being sincere. And before we try to resolve that, we first need to understand what Paul is doing here. And Paul is actually quoting, he's bringing the Old Testament into this text. And if you go earlier in the letter, we see that Paul, in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul is quoting, he's using Isaiah 11. So in chapter 1, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus... Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's the same text, the same words are derived from Isaiah 11. When Isaiah speaks of the Messiah coming, the son of Jesse, and He will come, and the spirit of Yahweh will come, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of wisdom. So you can see already in chapter 1 of Ephesians that Paul is quoting Isaiah 11. He's asking that the same Spirit that gave the Messiah wisdom, that gave Him knowledge, will be now resting upon the church in Ephesus. That's important. Because as we come to Isaiah, as we come to Ephesians 6, 14, we see now Paul quoting Isaiah 11, 5. So in Isaiah 11.5, we hear about the Messiah. Righteousness shall be a belt of his weight, his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. It's interesting how in the Greek version, the Septuagint, they have actually the word aletheia, truth. Truth shall be his belt. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's quoting that. So it's, and if you keep going in Isaiah 11, it's beautiful how in verse 10 it talks about the Messiah now, this descendant of David, bringing together Jews and Gentiles. That's exactly what Paul is doing throughout this letter. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. So, what Paul is doing here is not only asking the Lord to give the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge that wasn't the Messiah, but now to give even the belt of the Messiah to this church. The belt used by the Messiah belongs to the people of the Messiah. So, as we are thinking about what is the truth here, the belt of truth? Is it gospel truth or is it practical truth? Speaking the truth, being honest, being a truthful person. And we've got to stop and think, first of all, the belt of truth is a person. And what is the name of this person? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah of Isaiah 11. He was wearing the belt of truth. So when Jesus came to earth, He came with the belt of truth because He was fighting against whom? The father of lies. So He must come with the belt of truth because His arch enemy is the father of lies. 
So in John 18, 37, Jesus tells Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness, witness to uh, the truth. The truth. So Jesus not only fastened around His loins the belt of truth, but our Lord Jesus Himself is the belt of truth. Because in Revelation 19, 11, we see that the one sitting, the white horse, His name is what? Faithful and true. That's who our Lord is. So our captain's name is true. He's the essence and the embodiment of all truth. Jesus, like a belt, holds us together. Jesus alone gives us stability. And all those who are in Jesus Christ are clothed with the belt of truth. But in this journey, as we are journeying sanctification, we got to keep put on Jesus. Put on the virtues of Christ. Put on the belt of truth. Jesus, like a belt, must be tightened around our core. So we can stand firm. It's the Lord Jesus who said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And, if, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? And who is the truth that sets you free? I am the way and what? The truth. So, it's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. The belt of truth is the person of Jesus. To know the truth means to embrace the truth. Like a belt, the truth must be embraced to our core. We know that only Jesus can set people free. Only when Jesus, the belt of truth, is embraced around our inner core, that we are free to stand firm, free from Satan's chains that tries to keep us from standing firm. Amen? Another important aspect now leads to... Okay, let's keep seeing what Paul is talking about the truth here. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul connects the word of truth with the gospel... Who is connected with Jesus Christ Himself. So for Paul, it seems, it's impossible to separate the truth from the person of Christ. So the debate whether the belt of truth refers to doctrinal truth or ethical truth is not that significant when we realize that Jesus is the belt of truth. And when Jesus is tightly around our core, we will proclaim the truth and we will be truthful. So we don't need to divorce the two. They are married together. Doctrinal and practical. In Ephesians 5.9, moving here, Ephesians 5.9, Paul says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So truthfulness, speaking the truth, being honest, treasuring the truth, it's all the fruit of being part of the kingdom of light. And this kingdom of light is in Christ Jesus. He brings us to Himself and another aspect of the belt of truth that's very important is the aspect of the connection between truth and love. It's amazing that if all these parts of the armor, Paul never mentions love. When he calls theology, love is a major element of the Christian faith. And why does he talk about love here? I'll argue he talks. And if you are reading the letter to the Ephesians, you know that truth and love are inseparable. They are inseparable. So, for example, in Ephesians 4, let me just, yeah, it's right there. Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16, Paul says that we, the whole church, are to grow into Christ's likeness, grow into mature manhood, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. Instead, 
proclaiming the truth in love. So when you come to the belt of truth, you already know that Paul has been connecting truth and love together. They are inseparable. Truth and love are the heart of the covenant. You got to have truth and love, faithfulness and love. They're two inseparable aspects of a covenant relationship. I like one one scholar says about this text. We often hear people, they're so mean. They speak nasty to you and say, I'm just speaking the truth in love. <laughs> I'm just speaking the truth in love. Let's misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Actually, a better, a better translation is to proclaim the truth because he's talking about false teachers in the church. And I like what uh, Arnold he writes. He says, confessing the truth is a better translation than speaking the truth since the, la- the latter can be read as simply an exhortation to truthfulness in speech. In this context, however, it conveys the more specific sense of accepting the truth of the gospel, speaking it out loud in the corporate gatherings of worship, talking about it with fellow believers, and upholding it firmly. That's a church that's growing to maturity. It's a church that embraces the truth, proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ. Peter O'Brien is thus correct in observing, Paul wants all of them to be members of a confessing church, with the content of their testimony to be the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. Here, another commentator rightly concludes, So far from being children tossed, wandering, deluded with error, let us be possessing and professing the truth as a church. Amen? Amen. To confess the truth implies that we embrace the truth, that we submit to the truth, that we treasure the truth, and the truth is Jesus Christ. Instead of a weak, childish church, weak and tossed around, we are to be buckled with Christ, embracing Christ, putting on Christ in our core, proclaiming Jesus. And I, and I think this connection between the belt of truth and love, we see not only here in, in Ephesians, but in Colossians too. Colossians is very similar to Ephesians as Paul is calling the church to put on the new man, the new Adam, the new Christ that they have in a, in, in a context of war, he just told them to put to death. Put to death the old man. That's war language. And now he tells them to put on the new man. That's very similar to put on the armor of God. And then he says, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive And above above all these things, what? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the picture here is of a belt, tying up all the other garments together. Putting the love. Love and truth are inseparable. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth. One scholar says, Love takes no pleasure in someone else's failure, and delights in integrity and reality. If the situation is bad, love wants to help. If the situation is good, love wants to celebrate. Love wants no hidden interest which disguises truth as something which is not. Amen? Romans 12, we also see Paul connecting, putting the belt of truth, with clothing ourselves with love, this inseparable connection. So in Romans 12, 9, Paul says, Let love be 
what? Genuine or sincere. Sincere. Let, let love be truthful. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. The, the Greek word is literally hypocrisy. Without hypo hypocrisy. So Paul is saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest stumbling blocks in anybody's life. You have parents who in church, they show up themselves to be so godly. And then at home, they're just like the devil. <laughs> you have people who pretend to be something in one place, and then at home, or a different place, they're completely different. That's hypocrisy. That's why Jesus condemns hypocrisy. True love cannot have hypocrisy. And some of, some of you have experienced people say, I love you. And then they go on to tell you what to do, but then you look at their lives like, oh, so why are you not doing that? That's hypocrisy. Love cannot have hypocrisy. But that's not love. James Edwards, he writes about this text. Finally, the word for sincere in Greek means without hypocrisy. Or unstaged. In Greek drama, a single actor, Hupokrites, normally played several roles with corresponding masks for each character he played. But true love, says Paul, is anupokitros, unhypocritical, because he does not play different roles. Love is not a counterfeit, a mask of pretense, but a sincere expression of one's intentions. Sincere love. Christian love cannot be measured, calculated, or staged. It must be honest, genuine, and true to the motive of the giver. And that's how, and that's how we are going to fight against the lies, the schemes, and the attacks of the devil. He throws lies and slander in order to destroy the unity of the church. By having Jesus Christ around our core, by having Jesus as our belt of truth, love will be manifested in our church as it has been. Love for one another, love for the truth. Satan hates love. Satan hates the love between the brothers. Just look right after the fall, Adam and Eve have kids, and the first thing we see with their kids is the murder of two siblings, Cain and Abel. Satan hates the love between the brothers. And he's going to do all that he can. To divide brothers. So the belt of truth that is Jesus Christ brings true love, unity, and that's how we stand against the evil one, the devil. Jesus alone is our belt of truth. Jesus is the truth incarnate. He came into the world, into a world of lies, to war against the father of lies, and deliver his people from the slavery of lies, so that they may be lovers of what is true. The belt enabled a soldier to move quickly and unhindered. In the same way, Jesus enables us to fight against the schemes of the devil unhindered. The belt of truth is inseparable from love. The tighter Jesus is around our core as a belt, the more we will love one another, the more we will love the gospel, and the more we will hate Satan and his deceitful schemes. We need Jesus Christ as our belt to be surrounding our church, the core of our church. That must be Jesus Christ. We must refuse any other type of belt. 
We cannot have anything else to hold the core of this church. Amen? But Christ Jesus Himself. And we all together fasten the belt of truth around our church's core as we sing the truth about Jesus together. Through the preaching of the truth, preaching of the truth, we're all together listening attentively to the truth. Building each other the truth of Jesus. And the more we grow in communion with Jesus through corporate worship, through our lives in community, and through personal devotion to the Lord, the more we are empowered by the Lord to stand firm, having strapped the belt of truth. There is a consequence. The more we strap, the more we are strapped with the belt of truth, the stronger we will be, and the stronger the belt is around us, the stronger will be our love for one another. Amen. A local church girded with the belt of truth, girded with Jesus, is a church whose members love one another with true love. And Satan hates true love between brothers and sisters. So may the Lord help us. To put on him around the core of this church to give us stability, to hold us together, true love, sincerity in our relationships, and Christ Jesus and Him alone holding us together.